Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. I'm your host, Jason Greenblatt. With tensions rising across the world, diplomacy is needed perhaps now more than ever. During my time as former White House Middle East envoy and as one of the chief architects of peace between Israel and its Arab neighbors, I've had the chance to witness the power of diplomacy firsthand, and today, I would like to share that perspective with you. Shalom, salam, and welcome to The Diplomat. Today, I had as a special guest, John Medved. John is the CEO and founder of Our Crowd. Our Crowd is an investment platform for accredited investors and institutions to invest in startups, early stage companies, and venture funds. John has his finger on the pulse of investment these days. We had a lot of things to discuss, in particular, how the investment community fared as a result of COVID, how it's faring now as a result of the vicious attack by Russia on Ukraine. John, you are a legend, a legend not only in Israel, but a legend even in, uh, in America, right? You're, you've been on the venture capital space for so long, and I'm really delighted to have you here as a guest today. I'm delighted to be with you, Jason. Thank you. Let's start with our messy world. You know, you have this brutal invasion of Ukraine by Russia, the murder of Ukrainian civilians. We have the threat of Iran that continues to loom large, North Korea firing missiles. How has this messy world affected venture capital and investment generally? It's a great question, Jason, because what's really striking is how little impact the craziness of this world has had on venture capital. And part of it is venture capital is a risk embracing asset class, right? In other words, people who are investing in venture capital are risk takers. Um, Secondly, for example, here in Israel, we've developed this, call it uh, thick skin or imperviousness to geopolitics that doesn't seem to impact our venture capital or even our general economic health. You actually look back at the wars that Israel's fought and you can correlate that to Israeli stock market rallies. It's not because the investors like war, God forbid. It's simply that they know that people are gonna initially trade it down and then boom, it comes you know, uh, raging back. And what I think is happening now is that people are just accepting that the world's a dangerous place. The world is uh, a risky place. And, we, and, you know, as Jews, we've always known that, right? Kolo, Olam, Kolo, Gesher, Tsar, Ma'od. The whole world is a, a narrow bridge. But what's the essential thing? Ha'ikar, Lola Fachet klal, not to be afraid. And I think that um, what's going on now is that uh, investors who invest in venture capital in particular take long-term views realize that over the next you know, decade, it's going to be trending up and to the right. And regardless of how much craziness goes on, and by the way, if you take a, you know, a viewpoint for like what's going to happen next quarter or what's going to happen next year, of course you can be affected. But look what happened during the pandemic, right? The sky fell down in the beginning of the pandemic, markets tanked, 
And then they roared back. And everybody who had, you know, essentially decamped missed the best bull market of history. Okay, and who would have thunk it? Right. But the the reality is that uh, it's very hard to project what's going to happen, except that we know us who are in this business that betting against innovation in the long term is not a good bet. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned COVID because I remember at the beginning of COVID, many people froze like deer in the headlights and understandably so, right? It was something we hadn't faced in who knows how many years. Nobody knew where it was going, how bad it would be. And then not too long after it started, all of a sudden you see people stampeding back into the game and people did phenomenally well during the course of COVID. Yeah, I mean, look, right now there are certainly headwinds that mitigate against, you know, uh, valuations. I mean, for example, you know, a lot of the tech stocks have traded down, you know, significantly, right? More than 50%. And some people feel it's justified. Others, you know, think it's temporary. We'll see. Okay. Uh, Inflation is nobody's friend in, you know, my asset class. And in particular, the the food uh, supply crisis is going to be bad, right? It's going to, I just saw some data that the WHO published about a 13% rise worldwide on average in food costs, okay, which is a major component of inflation. So, you know, these things, in addition to the, just the absolute outrages being, uh, the barbaric outrages being conducted by uh, Putin and his henchmen in the Ukraine, do not make for a particularly, you know, lovely environment for investing. And I think that there has been a, a, a definite, you know, temporary, I hope, slow down, you know, in, in, in some activity. But in general, this is a good thing because you never see a trend line which is up and to the right in a straight line. It's always zigs and zags. And we're at one of the zag moments at the moment. So let's talk about the food supply issue. Um, here, I don't know what it's like in Israel, but here there's shortages of baby formula, eggs, I'm told chicken, although I'm not sure because I don't do the shopping in my household. What kind of tech are you seeing that long-term could help these food supply issues? Well, you know, we are huge believers in uh, food technology investing as well as ag tech uh, investing. And it's perfect for Israel because, you know, uh, in the food tech area, it's basically bringing all the skills we've developed in biotechnology and now applying them to food. So in particular, we're believers in alternative protein so we were investors early in a company called Beyond Meat, which used uh, plant-based, you know, to um, make incredible uh, burgers. Okay, and uh, we made that investment before it went public. Did very well on it. But now we're investing in people who are going to essentially grow protein in vats through fermentation, you know, cell lines and whatnot. And we're invested in people who are working on uh, meat, on fish. Uh, on eggs, on milk and cheese. And for me, perhaps the most exciting is seafood. So that depending upon who your local rabbi is, Jason, you and I may be able to share some delicious scallops and shrimp and not feel guilty about it. Uh, And (laughs) I look forward to that. (laughs) I've always wondered what it tasted like. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, and these are going to be very big businesses and they're going to have a huge impact on uh, food security, because if we can grow this stuff in vertical farms or in 
you know, old industrial buildings that have been refabbed, you know, refurbed, okay, in, uh, you know, some kind of sort of sketchy neighborhood. This is going to mean a very, very, you know, big change. And I think, for example, our friends in the Gulf are going to be very interested and are interested in investing in these technologies because they, no matter what they do outside, they're going to have a tough time uh, growing, okay, significant food. But inside, as part of a, you know, sort of a, a biotech, uh, you know, uh, brave new world kind of food. And by the way, this food is going to be incredibly healthy. The, uh, the company we're backing called Mermaid in the, uh, you know, seafood growing business, they won't have disease. You know, if, if people who eat mussels or scallops or oysters are always worried about getting bad seafood and getting sick. But this stuff, you don't get sick in our company, Plenty where we're co-invested with Walmart and with uh, SoftBank and the Soros Group, um, they're growing vertical farms. They're using 95% less water. Can you imagine growing you know, crops with 5% of the normal water? There's not a speck of dirt, there's no insect, and there's no human hands touching this stuff. It's all robots. And, and, and this is simply gonna be, a, it's gonna take real capital to invest in this, but I think it's going to be a huge change and the food's going to be healthy and taste great. It's not Franken food. It's not, uh, you know, stuff that has been uh, GMO or, you know, genetically engineered. It's just simply smart food technology, which I think is going to soon, you know, affect the entire world's food supply. Look, healthy for the planet, healthy for the human, onshoring back to your own country to the extent you can to avoid these supply chain disruptions. I mean, it sounds like a win-win. And when you layer on yeah. top of that tasty, you know, uh, I don't, I, you know, it's really remarkable the changes just recently over these things. Yeah. Let, let's talk about mobility. So I'm old enough to remember when the first person told me about Waze and I was scratching my head and thinking, What? And now we're talking about autonomous vehicles in the not too distant future. Tell me about the arc of mobility when the technology sort of started and where you see it going. Well, I mean, this, the technology started in terms of the modern, you know, uh, mobility revolution, you know, dozens of years ago uh, when the first attempts at electrification happened, you know, look at the, the journey that uh, Elon Musk has taken to become the wealthiest person in the world. This is a, a great, great business. And what's, again, shocking about what's happened in Israel is that, you know, we did once try to build a car in Israel. I don't know if you ever ran into it. It was called the Susita, which means the little horse, <laughs> except this wasn't a horse. This was more like a, a rabbit. Okay. This was a, not even a rabbit because it was slow. It was this little boxy thing made of fiberglass. And if you parked it too long in the Negev desert, You'd be lucky if a camel would eat a, a bumper or something that <laughs> camels developed a real taste for it. And it was it was a laughing stock. It made, you know, the cars coming out of Russia look like, you know, Porsches and Cadillacs. And that was Israel's, you know, gift to the 50s, 60s, 70s, you know, car industry. Now you fast forward to a company called Mobileye that was purchased about a half a decade ago for $16 billion by Intel, becoming the single largest exit in Israel and, you know, essentially powered Intel into the, you know, pole position relative to supplying semiconductors and the associated software for what's called ADAS or, you know, uh, essentially uh, accident detection and avoidance systems, as well as autonomous driving. And now there are hundreds of startups in Israel 
doing this stuff uh, that and we have a portfolio at our crowd with maybe 20 of them. And they range from companies that are doing massive simulation so that the poor people who are trying to, uh, you know, get their autonomous vehicles to, to work by driving them billions of miles don't need to do so. OK, and, and uh, risk irate residents of Chandler, Arizona, who want to, you know, take a baseball bat and attack their LIDAR on top of that, you know, because they're, they're afraid of these things. Okay. So we need simulation. We need companies that are doing data to day to transfer companies that are worried about cybersecurity in the car, because if the car now is, you know, a hundred or more chips, you don't want somebody to hack your car and drive you off a bridge or into a wall. So you really, you know, the, 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 the price of, Cybersecurity, you know, in your office is is bad, right? Someone could, God forbid, hack your account and steal your your money. The price of cybersecurity in your car is sort of like you could lose your life, and 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 so there's just this in, in huge amount of activity going on. You know, we're investing in micro mobility. We're investing in next generation sort of maglev pods. Uh, we are we are very big believers. At, uh, in order to really, you know, reach the the the, the next level of uh, civilization, we're going to need a, a, a complete redo of our uh, transportation systems. We're going to take a break. You have been listening to The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome back to The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. There's a great segue to cybersecurity because you touched on it. So it's always been a threat, right? But today you have all these shadow wars being fought. Uh, the Russia-Ukraine issue has made it even more prominent. What are you seeing in terms of cyber tech? Are we keeping up with the threats or is it a never-ending battle? It is a never-ending battle. I mean, it's. I hate to say that to an audience or say, what? We have to live on our swords? We'll get used to it, okay? I mean, that's in Israel... People ask, well, when are we going to have, you know, a final piece where there's no more terror and no more, you know, bloodshed? And, and, and uh, you know, you being talking to you about peace since you were, you know, an architect of what has been extraordinary for us with the Abraham Accords. Um, we realize that it's it's incremental progress. OK, that we're, we're 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 making progress. We're stopping a lot of the bad guys, but they got a lot of money. A lot of them are, are, are really bad guys. They're state sponsored actors, you know, from Iran or from North Korea, you know, where literally this is or Russia, this is the big business in these countries, you know, and they and they want to, you know, uh, prey upon you. That's what they're doing. So the, the good news is that Israel is on the case 
And at the moment, Israel really is the fortress for the entire world. About 40% in 2021 of investment dollars put into cybersecurity companies, and that was about $21 billion invested, came into Israel. Israel had over $8 billion of uh, money invested in cybersecurity. In terms of the US IPOs for cybersecurity companies in 2021, 40% in New York were Israeli companies. So you, you really, and there have been about 130 cyber exits from Israel. We just had, uh, you know, we have had a couple of cyber exits at, at, our, at our crowd recently. There was a company called CyberX that protects critical infrastructure, which is really, you know, one of the big things. I mean, what's happening now with cyber is not just the cat and the mouse and we're getting better and they're getting better and we're getting better and they're getting better, but it's also about securing, you know, vertical areas. So for example, we've got to make sure that the electrical grid is secure, that the water network is secure, that hospitals and medical devices are secure. You don't want someone to hack your pacemaker, okay, and send you a ransom note saying you've got 30 minutes to live. And and so there are companies that are really, uh, you know, going into those areas. And I think what makes Israel so formidable is that our people aren't just being trained in a university. They're being trained in the school of, of, of uh, real life, which is the IDF technical units who are on the front lines fighting these jerks and evil people every day and doing well and then turning these you know, technologies and tactics and strategies into winning companies that make investors like us money. So let's drill down for a minute because you addressed this point. But for my listeners who don't understand Israel, you and I understand Israel well. What should my listeners understand as to why Israel is always at the forefront, not only on cyber tech, but technology technology generally? Look, I, I think that um, it's not just Israel, but Jews. OK, you have to look at uh, Jewish influence on technology and science. You ask yourself a question. Why is it that? About 30% of the uh, Nobel Prizes in Sciences went to Jews, okay, over the last 100 years or so. And it's not because of Jewish brains. It's because despite some people who think that Judaism is antithetical to science and technology, people, I think, who deeply understand Judaism understand that we are living in harmony with it. And at the beginning of the state of Israel, technology was at the forefront, right? In other words, who was our first president? Chaim Weizmann, who was a you know chemist, great chemist, whose work on uh, acetone was critical to getting the Balfour Declaration, right? Uh, his rival for the first president was uh, Albert Einstein, okay, who was talked about to be the president of Israel. Um, when Israel had no money for budgets, they allocated money for a von Neumann early computer, okay, which they, you know, we had nothing and, and people here were investing in that. So Israel has always pushed on this uh, lever to stay ahead. But in general, we have a tradition in the Jewish people of turning curses into blessings. So there are certain things where, let's face it, it's a curse, like the fact that we have no water, that Israel is a very parched and very dry land, except when you drive around, you say, wow, that's pretty green. You know, I was down in the desert 
just a, a week ago for a, for a wedding where people and it looked like Ireland, the, the, the desert was becoming green. And how is that possible? And it's because we were cursed. We have no choice. We have to become masters of water technology. So today, Israel recycles 90 percent of its water usage. The closest competitor, I think, is Spain, who recycle about 15 or 20 percent. The U.S., my understanding, recycles less than 5 percent of water usage because the U.S. has a lot of water in some places, some places less so. You look at Israel has no real market. We're a tiny little country, right, of less than 10 million people, but a lot bigger than when I got here 40 years ago. And yet that's become a blessing because it forces our companies to go out to the world to find markets. So our companies go global early. Another curse is the, is the fact that we have to live with an army and our kids have to protect us. And 75% of the boys and 50% of the girls serve in the army. Is that really a curse? No, because our kids aren't narcissistic. They become mission driven. They're about service and they grow up real fast. By the way, they're fun loving people. They'll, they'll go off and travel the world and Israelis like a party as much or more than anybody. But on the other hand, this army has really, you know, been a, a blessing for the society. And you can go on and on and on. And I think that ultimately, when you look at technology, the biggest curse we've had is that we've had to live with existential risk as Jewish people. People actually, you know, have wanted and tried to destroy us through the generations. You know, uh, in every generation, we learn that there's somebody who comes to try to destroy us. And today there are people who are, you know, advocating for this as we speak. But when you compare that risk to the risk of starting a company, of stepping out of your comfort zone, and whether it's to do a business adventure or to be a great scientist or a great novelist or a filmmaker, you know, or a Broadway play, the risk of failure there does not compute against existential risk. So I think Jews have always been, and Israel as the Jewish state, a risk-taking place where we realize that life is short. And if you hide and worry about risk and don't do it, okay, you're going to miss out on the, on the great things that life can provide. So go take the risk, go build the company, go write the play, go invent something which will win a Nobel Prize. Let's spend a few minutes on labor. So, you know, you've heard of, I'm sure, the Great Resignation, the Great Migration. I assume they call them similar names in Israel and elsewhere. How much of an issue is that still for companies? Well, I, I think, by the way, it's an opportunity. <laughs> okay, I, I look at it on the flip side. We have two companies, one called HoneyBook and the other called Taylor Brands, who are based on the great resignation. And of course, as a result of it, their, their businesses are booming. What they do is they're helping all these gigsters, people who have got a side hustle or their side hustle has become their main hustle and they've quit their, their regular job. Um, how does a massage therapist or a wedding photographer or a, you know, a physical trainer, okay, run their business? How do you stay in touch with your clients? How do you build them? How do you market to them? And then you, today you use HoneyBook to do that. At Taylor Brands, you can go there and you can, you know, get a logo incorporated and do it literally minutes, okay, so that there are huge opportunities. I think the the issue has been that we're in an interesting place relative to the cycle changing, which is that robotics and automation are going to make many, many jobs redundant. 
right? I wouldn't, you know, train my kid to be a driver today. Okay. There are many kids I'm seeing now are saying, yeah, why should I bother to get a driver's license? I'm just going to Uber it. Okay. And and soon enough, there's going to be autonomous driving. So there are clearly things where the jobs are going to go away. Uh, But on the other hand, we can't all be programmers, right? And we can't all be scientists. So, you know, it's, it's interesting to find sort of which jobs are going up. Like, you know, what's a big job still is video editing. Uh, someone I heard describe it as a golden collar job. So it's not really blue collar and it's not white, but you sure make a lot of money if you're a video editor. And unless you're very, very, you know, uh, out of the loop, you're, you're probably, you know, quite busy because everybody wants, you know, video as part of their communication uh, uh, repertoire for, for a company. Um, Look, I, th- I think the big issue for people in the job market is going to be continued education and reinvention. That today, it doesn't work the way it used to 30, 40 years ago. We were trained for a job. You were able to put your 40 or 50 years in and, and call it a day. Okay. And if you lived in Japan, you worked for one company. If you lived in America, you maybe shifted places two or three times. Today, unfortunately, many of these jobs are going to become obsolete. And you're going to need to reinvent yourself. You're going to have to be able to learn new things and develop new skills and and get educated. And some people are suited for that. Others not. What I'm seeing a lot is people who are in their 60s and 70s coming to Israel as sort of retirees. And then all of a sudden they've reinvented themselves and they have a new business. Okay. My late father, Dr. David Medved, made Aliyah at 65. And within about a month of getting here, he started a startup again. He had had a couple before, and that was the best startup he ever had. And he worked until a week before he died at age 83. Okay. And no one batted an eyelash. Like what's this 83 year old guy doing being a chief scientist of an optical communications company. Uh, This is not an ageist society. And that's good for me since I'm, you know, well, I think I'm 22 years old. I'm no longer (laughs) 22. Uh, and I, I, I find that the the real issue now is going to be, are you young in spirit? Are you young in mind? Are you following the psalmist who said, you know, that you should be, you know, fertile in old age, okay, and, and productive and uh, creative. And that's really the blessing which everybody, I think, wants to achieve, that you don't stop being productive, you have that kind of attitude, great resignation should not bother you a bit. Yeah. So it's not just about grit anymore. It's about reinvention, excitement in what you do, always looking to figure out the next step. Great thoughts. There's news today about California thinking of going to a four-day work week. Realistic, not realistic, generally speaking, what does that mean for companies, especially if they have to pay overtime beyond the four days? Well, it's funny because there was a, used to be a joke in Israel about when are we going to go to the four day work week? And I think one of the ministers quipped back after we get to one day first. Uh, and uh, then, you know, I, I, I think that the idea of going to four days sounds wonderful because today we are really slaves to Zoom. OK, and we're. We're work, I've never seen people work so hard in their lives in, in the tech sector. You get up in the morning at eight o'clock, you know, you're on their first Zoom. 
If you're unlucky, you know, you're finishing at midnight. If you're lucky, you're finishing at nine. And these boundaries between work and home life have just been erased in the, you know, great world of hybrid work or, you know, work from home. And uh, I, I don't think that this idea of a work week matters anymore for most modern jobs because people are just working all the time. And, the, and, I, and, I, and I worry about this. Look, I'm a, as you know, like you, a, a Shabbat observer. And, you know, a shutdown one day a week. Thank God I wouldn't be alive if I you know, ha- did not have Shabbat to sort of come and say, wait a minute, stop. OK, just smell the roses, relax. And, and I think that um, it's no longer an issue because to the extent that people are going into their workplace for one or two days a week, which is what most of these companies are talking about now. It's just not the the kind of thing which I pay too much attention to. What I do worry about is people, you know, staying sane and and healthy, you know, by having good, uh, you know, work family balance and you know work fun balance. You know, today we had a wonderful event with my company where we raised a cup we call a haramat kosit uh, for the Passover, you know, holiday, and we had our 300 people out on the beautiful lawns uh, next to us in Jerusalem where the trees were flowering. And it was just, you know, uh, wonderful to be back with people. It was outside. It was COVID safe, you know, and we're seeing people. I I must've seen in my company, maybe 50 people who I had never met face to face because of the COVID crisis. And I knew them from zoom. And now you get to wait, well, she, that person's a lot taller, a lot shorter than I thought they were. And uh, it was just a, a wonderful thing. And I hope that we're back to the office. I miss the office, but I'm, I'm afraid that the days of the pre-pandemic world are, are not coming back. And, and, and we have to learn to live with, with new realities. Last question, John. What do you think is the next big disruptor or one or two? If you could think of three even better, but one or two. <sighs> Look, I, I think that number one is quantum computing. And that's daunting to many people who look at this and say, what, quantum computing, really? Except that it's going to be a huge game changer. It's going to affect everything. It's going to break encryption. It's going to you know, accelerate drug discovery. And uh, while you won't see it really have a major impact in the first part of this decade, the second part of this decade will be a quantum decade. You watch my, my prediction here. Um, number two, which I think is really important, is uh, energy. And while you know there's a race on for uh, clean hydrogen and you know storage for uh, uh, renewables, we've got an amazing company out of the UK called Connected Energy who are using uh, depleted electric car vehicle batteries to be stocked stacked up in a cluster to provide storage for renewables. Because as you know, you know, you can get a lot of energy from the sun or from wind, and then you can't, and you need to store it. So here's a just a great sort of circular economy story of a company taking, you know, something which is a waste problem, right? When your Tesla battery gets to be 80%, you got to take it out of the car, and it then becomes a waste problem. But now no, take it, put it in a, in a stack and you know, create more, more, more effective energy storage. So I think energy around storage, around hydrogen, around software to manage the grid is going to be huge. And 
you know, uh, very, very important. And then finally, I actually believe in the metaverse. Okay, I know there's been a lot of hype and I'm not making a comment about buying NFTs or not. And I leave that to my, uh, I have a son who's like completely into this stuff. Um, I don't buy NFTs at the moment, have not yet. Um, but I, I do believe that what what is what is being talked about, both in terms of the metaverse and Web 3.0, which is the tokenization and blockchain everywhere, is going to change our experience on uh, the Internet. Right. If you think that YouTube and Instagram and TikTok, you know, or LinkedIn is the is it, you know, you're wrong. OK, we're going to have a much richer experience in terms of socializing and experiencing virtual worlds that connect to the real world. And, you know, it's it's hard to really grok what's going on in the metaverse, but it's going to be, I think, significant. And then the same goes for blockchain, where blockchain, I think, is going to be a, a huge part of business. We're going to have smart contracts, you know, uh, as part of the, the tokens, which we're, I think are gonna become ubiquitous in many kinds of uh, transactions. Now, these things aren't gonna happen overnight. I don't think we're seeing change in a, in a one year, two year timeframe, but I think over this decade, you'll see both of those. Uh, when you look at the three big areas that I talked about, which is sort of the next generation of the internet, which is met, the metaverse and, and blockchain web 3.0, that's going to be significant over the decade. In addition to that, you're gonna have huge changes in the energy market, especially around hydrogen and new sources of energy, uh, software to manage the grid, as well as uh, you know, storage for renewables. And then, and then finally, uh, quantum computing is gonna be real speed and power for the entire you know, uh, humanity. John Medved, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your insight, and uh, good luck with all your work. Thank you, Jason. It was great to be with you. Really glad John Medved joined me. John is the founder and CEO of Our Crowd. I should point out I have an interest in Our Crowd International General Partner. John shared a lot of insight with me in terms of the tech space, startups, investing, great migration, great resignation. Hope you found it fascinating. I'm Jason Greenblatt. This is The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek.